For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 is for the whoever's. Wherever you came from, whatever you've done, and whoever you are, I want you to know that according to John 3.16, right now you have an arms wide open welcome from God. Anybody, everybody, anywhere, whoever. John 3.16 isn't just for kids. It's for hurting mothers, broken fathers, and all of us. It isn't just for t-shirts and tattoos and bumper stickers and bookmarks. Because John 3.16 is not a decoration. It's a declaration. John 3.16 is an invitation to redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, and eternal life. John 3.16 reminds us that the story of God isn't about a few special people making it up to God, but God making His way down to the rest of us, to the whoever's. John 3.16 is what God thinks about you. You are loved, welcomed, valued, seen, and you are invited. You are not half-loved, you are not unseen, and you are not forgotten. John 3.16 is for the whoever's. John 3.16 is for you. John 3.16 is for me. Well, we are continuing with our series of Fight the Good Fight, and that's what we're looking at today. And it's not a series that's uh, inciting you to violence, physical violence, but rather a series that's inciting us to integrity. And I think that's what Paul meant when he talked to Timothy, his true son in the faith, and said, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Maintain your integrity in your faith in a world that wants to squeeze you into its mold but also contend for the faith, the faith that's once delivered by the saints and to the saints. And so that's what we're looking at, and hopefully we can do that well individually, but also as a community. Maintain our integrity and contend for the faith. Uh, Paul, at the end of his life, was able to say this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I think that's my highest aspiration, as a person, is to be able to say, like Paul said, I have fought the good fight. And hopefully that's our aspiration as well, uh, to be able to finish the race well. It's easy to start a race. It's easy to get going most of the time, but it's sometimes very difficult to finish the race. Well, as we think about fighting, <laughs> once upon a time, many, many moons ago, I used to compete in martial arts tournaments. I know it's hard to believe, no laughter please, I'm sensitive about the topic, um, but I was actually fairly competent at it. I studied a karate form called Chitoru, and we did it in West Kelowna in the Okanagan, and we had an amazing dojo, and we competed at uh, a number of different events, including the BC Winter Games, at which, this is my bragging moment, I was gonna bring the medals, but I won two bronze medals. Yes, thank you, thank you. Now, that doesn't mean that after the service, you can come up and like punch me in my stomach to see if I can take it, because I won't. Uh, years ago, I traded my six pack in for a keg, and um, 
But in the tournaments, there's uh, two categories that we normally compete in. Some of you are involved in martial arts here. You might know what I'm talking about. But there's two categories that at least we competed in. One is kumite, which is basically sparring. You're against another opponent. And the other is kata, which you have movements or form. And kata is done in four different directions against kind of imaginary opponents. And you're supposed to show your form as you move in these four different directions. So when I think about fighting the good fight, for some reason in my brain, I go back to those years of kata, of form, of moving in these four directions. What I'm suggesting is, as we think about fighting the good fight, we're not fighting against four different opponents, but we are moving in at least four different directions as we perfect our form as disciples of Jesus. And that's what we're looking at this month. Four directions that will help us fight the good fight. First of all, the direction is toward the scripture. Don't forget the scriptures, says Paul to Timothy. You knew them since you were a kid. Your grandmother and your mother taught them to you. Don't stray from them. Don't go off into vain philosophies. Don't get lost in endless arguments. Come back again and again to the scripture. If you're facing something in your life right now, it's worthwhile pausing and saying, what does the Bible have to say about this? And that's, what, that's how we fight the good fight. The second movement is toward the cross. Paul said to the Corinthians, I have, I have sought to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul talked about a lot of things, but his movement was always toward the cross. And I hope you kind of sense that as we gather as a community together. In all of our messages, we are moving, moving, moving toward the cross of Jesus. And that's so essential if we're going to fight the good fight. Well, the third movement that we're looking at today is related to the first two. But I'm going to uh, just spell it out this way. The movement toward the gospel movement toward the gospel, to not forget this gospel good news of Jesus. Well, what is the gospel? What are we talking about? Uh, we sometimes use the phrase, the gospel truth, or we have gospel tracts. I was terrified as a kid of chick publications. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and some of the gospel tracts and literature that came across my way. What do we mean when we talk about the gospel? Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we have in this uh, just few verses, really the heart and core of the gospel. So when we're answering the question, what is the gospel? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read the first four verses. Paul says this, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you will still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed in something that was never true in the first place. Paul emphasizes that later on in the text, and we'll get to that at Easter time. But verse 3 says this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. That's the heart and core of the gospel. Three things, at least, that Paul says here about the gospel. First, it's historical. It's an actual event in history. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. 
It's not a set of principles for living. It's not a philosophy. It's not, um, you know, an eightfold path that we're meant to walk. It's this crazy, amazing event in history that Jesus actually died and that he actually rose again from the dead. And Paul goes on in that chapter to say, if you don't believe me, here's a whole list of people that you can ask. Reasonable people, people who have no motivation to lie about this, people that you can knock on their doors and go interview about it. They've seen it. They've witnessed it firsthand. This is something that happened in history. And because it happened, it changes everything. Everything that we thought we knew about life, everything that we thought we knew about death. The greatest enemy to humanity is what? It's death. It's dying. Some of us think about it maybe more than others because uh, we're either facing it personally or we faced it in our family. This afternoon, Christy and I will take part in a funeral service for her cousin. And so we're confronted with death. And it seems like it's so final. But Jesus rose from the dead. And so we have this event in history that shakes our understanding of the greatest enemy of humanity, even death itself. Paul says the gospel, the good news, is first of all, an historic event. He says, second, it's not only historical, it's theological. It's not just a random event in history. It's not an event that takes place in a vacuum. It's not an event that takes place without context and meaning. In fact, it has deep theological roots. It's according to the scriptures. So this was God's plan all along. This wasn't just an accident. And hey, they didn't manage to kill him. Jesus rose again. No, this was the plan all along. Paul says this happened, his death and his resurrection, according to the scriptures, according to God's plan. This is a theological event, something about God and his plan in the universe. But it's not only historical and theological, it's also personal. Paul always drives this home, doesn't he? How personal it is. Paul says, this is of utmost importance to me, and I gave it to you, and now it's of utmost importance to you. You welcomed this good news. You received this good news, and now it's personal. It's not only God's story, it's your story as well. And that's part of what the gospel is. So my invitation this morning, right from the start, is that I hope that this gospel message is personal to you as well. That you've had an opportunity to repent, to change your mind and your thinking about Jesus, and to believe the gospel, to believe this good news, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And because of that, life and eternity is different. But here's the thing. It's not just about the message, this good news, this gospel. It's also about the method of delivery. It's not just about the message as if it's an idea, but it's also about the, the method of delivery. Paul says this, this is the good news that I proclaimed to you, that I preached to you. Inherent in the idea of the gospel is that it is shared, that it's shared. Uh, the word gospel comes in a roundabout way through kind of German and English and to us today. The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is a word that's not just natural to the Bible. It's actually used in Greek literature in many different ways. 
And it was used of an announcement, an announcement of good news. I think the most common uh, understanding or illustration that's used is, imagine we were in a small village back in the Greco-Roman world, and we were hanging out, but we were threatened by a, a power that was coming to destroy us. So we sent our fighting men out to go and protect us. And then we were waiting on pins and needles. Were they going to succeed? Were they going to be defeated? Were we all going to be killed? Were they going to take away our whatever we have? Um, And so we waited and waited. And at the battle, they would send a runner. And the runner would run all the way back to the village. And as he came back, he would herald the good news. We won! We won! And people would celebrate the euangelion. They would celebrate the gospel. They'd celebrate the good news that there's been victory. And so that's good news. It's, it's not just about the fact that it happened. It's also about the, the method of delivery, that it's shared, that it's delivered, that it's proclaimed. This is the good news. The good news that Jesus is alive. And it's meant to be shared. It's meant to be proclaimed. Jesus made this really, really clear to us even though sometimes we might forget it. But he said in Mark chapter 16, he told his disciples, go into all the world and preach this good news to everyone. Proclaim it. Part inherent in the good news is this proclamation. Romans chapter 10, Paul picks up that theme and he says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. Everyone, as we saw in the, the video before the sermon, You know, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul goes on to say, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? (laughs) And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. And that, in fact... It's the part in the Bible where good news is mentioned first in the book of Isaiah, the good news. And so part of the idea of good news is that it is shared by faithful messengers. And so here's the question that I want to pivot to as we go through this message today. How do we share it? How do we share this good news? In footnotes this morning, we kind of ran out of time because we got talking about all sorts of things, but it was still a great uh, discussion together. There's only one more session of footnotes left. It's next week, come at 9 a.m. to room one, and uh, we have a good time there, I think. But we were just about to get to the sticky parts of sharing the good news, and we didn't quite get to it because there's a lot of reluctance to sharing the good news because sometimes the church has not done it very well. Sometimes we've taken this good news and we've delivered it in a way that just supports um, perhaps conquest narrative or conquering others with the good news. And that's not the way it was meant to be shared. Sometimes we're reluctant to share it because we don't feel particularly equipped to share this good news. So how do we overcome that? How do we share this good news? Well, there's a quote that's often attributed to uh, St. Francis Uh, There's no proof that he actually said this, and it's a quote that you might have heard, and it's a quote that I have some difficulty with, but I'm going to say it anyway. The quote is this, preach the gospel at all times, 
Use words if necessary. And I think there's some goodness there, right? I understand the sentiment of that, but even with that sentiment, I think it's poor theology. In fact, uh, the problem is, and basically the sentiment is saying, that our actions should reflect the gospel that we preach. And I agree with that, right? The problem is, they don't. <laughs> if we're honest, not 100%, and not 100% of the time. And so if we're depending entirely on our actions to share the gospel, we're in trouble. Because our actions don't always reflect the gospel. And so, in fact, I would change that statement around and, and say this. Uh, preach the gospel at all times. Learn to use your words. <laughs> we need to use words. It's part of the inherent nature of the gospel. When I get excited with a new bucket of ice cream, <laughs> I often uh, do one thing. I, I open the lid before thinking about, you know, future plans. And I'm standing there and I'm saying to Christine, mm, Mm. And she says to me, use your words, because I'm looking for my favorite ice cream spoon. Some of you know the story of my one spoon that we have in the drawer that is only for ice cream and only for me. But, but I get too excited about it, right? And I forget to use my words. Well, sometimes with the gospel, uh, we shouldn't get so excited about it. We forget to use our words. We need to use our words. So what words do we use when we're trying to share the gospel? Well, here's, first of all, this. Words of declaration. Words of declaration. Jesus is alive. In Luke chapter 24, we uh, find the story post-resurrection of the women who went and stuck by Jesus through thick and thin. I mean, it was this group of women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Mary the mother of Jesus. Um, these faithful women are the ones that stuck by Jesus during his trial. They stuck by Jesus at the foot of the cross. They were the ones that arranged for the burial of his body, and they're the ones that were brave enough to go to his tomb in order to perform the right rituals for his burial. It was the women that went there, and it was the women who were entrusted to be the first heralds of the gospel, the first ones to proclaim the good news. But here's what happened. It says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. It literally says that. These guys, I mean, who are you to tell us? We're the apostles, right? And the women are coming back. But remember, the women, they didn't come back and just mime it to the apostles, right? <laughs> The woman didn't come back and, and just kind of try and live their lives in such a way that the apostles would finally clue in through their joy that Jesus was maybe alive. They came back and they used their words. He is risen. He is risen. And they were excited and they used their words. And even though the men didn't believe it at the time, they had to see for themselves because they're stubborn. God entrusted these faithful women to be the first messengers, the first preachers of the gospel and they used words of declaration. Now I recognize that we can't always use words of declaration. Maybe it's not always appropriate, or the right timing isn't right in our family or our workplace. If you go into your workplace on Monday and you shout out to your fellow staff members, he is risen, don't expect, he is risen indeed, to come back, right? It will be probably be more like what's happening here. The story sounded like nonsense to them, so they didn't believe it. 
Uh, but still, there is a time for declaration. There's a time for declaration personally. There's a time for declaration as a community that we continue to say, this is what we believe, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, but that he rose again the third day. I'm so looking forward to Easter this year as we gather to declare this very thing, that he is risen. But what happens if you don't have a chance to declare that publicly or even privately with people? Well, there's another set of words we can use, and it's words of invitation. Words of invitation. I love the stories in uh, John chapter 1. Jesus is going around and beginning to invite people to follow him. And this is what it says. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. I love that. I love that on so many different levels, right? I love that the Bible records Nathaniel going, what? Can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from Edmonton? I don't know. Right? Another jab. I know sometimes my father-in-law is watching, so I have to get it in there. Can anything good? So what does Philip do? Does he enter into an argument? Does he pull out his scripture and start pointing to the different verses? Does he, what does he do? He says, come and see. Words of invitation. Come and see. I don't know, but, but I'm pretty excited about this. Why don't you come and see? I think we can do that with our friends. I, I think we have a community of faith here and we're confident enough that when people walk through the doors that we're not going to check their theology and judge them as they come through the door. I think it's a safe enough place, I hope it is, where we can say to people that don't fit into church, come and see. I know you've got uh, arguments against and I know you've got complications in your life, but come and see. That's all we're saying. And that's a word of invitation that we can use. So words of declaration, words of invitation. But then there's also words of explanation. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Peter says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Just such wisdom here in how we use our words to share the gospel, Right? Share, share a, a, an answer for the hope that you have in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Not with words of confrontation. Not with words of argumentation. Not, not with coercive persuasion. Not with fear-mongering. Not with guilt-inducing words. Uh, do it with words of, of gentleness and respect. But share a reason for the hope that you have in you. Use your words and that's when it comes down to it. This is the most powerful testimony to the gospel that we have, is our own experience of it. And we have an opportunity just to use our words, to say, come and see, but also, hey, this is my story. This is where I'm coming from. This is why it matters to me. In John chapter 9, there's another fantastic um, story. If you go home, and, and I encourage you to read this, because I think there's actually a bit of humor in it. it. It's kind of crazy. It's about a man who was born blind. 
Because he's born blind, he's begging on the side of the road, and Jesus walks along with his disciples, and the disciples, they pretend to be smart from time to time, like all of us do, right? And so they say, hey, Jesus, this guy here, uh, so he was born blind. Was that uh, his sin or his parents' sin? (laughs) Because that's the assumption. Someone did something wrong for this guy to be born blind, and Jesus says neither. It's so that the power of God can be displayed in his life. And then Jesus does something really weird. He goes over and he gives instructions to this guy, weird instructions, and he sends the guy away, still blind. The guy goes and follows the instructions of Jesus, and he can see. But he's never seen Jesus. What an interesting dilemma, right? And so then this guy who can now see is walking around, and some of the other guys in the village, they look and say, hey, isn't that Jimmy? Wasn't he blind? He's walking around. He's not stumbling into things. Jimmy, is that you? He's like, yep, it's me. I was blind and now I can see. What about that? And uh, so that was amazing. But then they start to report this to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they get all up in arms about this. What? How is that guy walking around and now he can see? We're going to quiz his parents. And they go to his parents and they say, is this your son, Jimmy? And they're like, yes, that's my son. But you know what? He's old enough. He can answer for himself. We don't want anything to do with this. They've already washed their hands of poor Jimmy. Long, long, I don't know if his name was Jimmy, but we'll, we'll go with it. And so poor Jimmy, he's, he, he, he can see, but no one's wanting to believe him. And so finally, the religious leaders question him. And, and uh, he's like, look, I don't know who this Jesus is. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know if he's sent from Satan. All I know is this. I was blind, and now I see. That's the testimony, <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, you don't have to come up with a whole pile of theological arguments. I mean, it's great if we know our Bible and know our verses, but it's far more important to have this experience of the risen Jesus. So we can simply say to people, I don't know how it all works. I don't fully understand it. I know I still have sometimes doubts even, but I know this. I was blind, but now I see. And that's this word of explanation, that's all we need to give, is the explanation of our own experience. I think about our, my own family, and I've had opportunity because I'm up here often enough to share some of my family's story, but as my family came from Scotland over into Winnipeg in the 60s, and uh, my mom and dad just, they became more Scottish in Winnipeg than they were in Glasgow. Um, they did a whole lot more drinking, that's for sure. And uh, my mom actually became uh, trapped by alcohol and drug use uh, to the point when I was very young that she decided she was going to commit suicide. But her brother had tried to tell her about the good news of Jesus. And my uncle James had a terrible stutter and he had a hard time getting his words out. But still with all of that, he was determined to tell his sister, there's new life in Christ. And on the day that she was planning to take her life, she remembered his words and she cried out, God, if you're there, change me. And God changed her. God changed her. She never went back to alcohol or drugs. She flushed them all down the toilet. My dad wasn't very happy with that. Um, All his good scotch down the drain. Um, and in fact, my dad was very upset. He wouldn't let my mom go to church. He ripped up her Bible. He, he forbade her from, from studying scripture. And I tell you my mom's story because the only practice she had in telling her story was me. 
Because all my older brothers, they were afraid of my dad, so they stayed out of the way. And so mom would tell me the stories of Scripture. She would tell me these stories. And that's the entrance of the gospel and God's grace into our whole family. Till there came a point where all of us repented, believed the gospel, and were baptized in the name of Jesus. Uh, The gospel saved our family. That's our story. (laughs) That's our story. And so we share these words, but they don't have to be terribly poetic. They don't have to be terribly theological even. They just need to be personal, coming from this personal experience of the risen Savior. So that's my question. Have you welcomed this good news into your life? Just like the Corinthians welcomed and embraced this good news of the gospel. Have you done that? Have you recently used your words to share your story with someone else? And that's my, that's my challenge this week. Whether it's your wife or your husband, a child, a willing listener, somewhere along the story, let's encourage one another to share our stories of why we have this hope in us. Why do you have this hope? Be prepared to give a reasonable account for that. So my encouragement when it comes to sharing the good news is really this. Use your words. Words of declaration. Jesus is alive. Words of invitation. Come and see. And words of explanation. This is the reason for the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that God reigns. Let's pray together. Father, first of all, thank you for this great good news that we get to share in this morning. This declaration of the victory of Jesus. And as we uh, march toward Easter and come out, as Justin reminded us, of, of kind of the darkness of winter, both very physically, but also theologically and, and emotionally sometimes, uh, we, we look forward to that day of Easter when we get to declare that Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, uh, we've got spring, eternal spring to look forward to. We have a hope for the future, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. But Father, help us never to hold that hope, that good news, just to ourselves. Help us to share it. Help us to use our words in ways that are wise and gentle and kind so that others might be freed from guilt and shame and can enter into the glorious hope of Jesus, your son. We pray in his name. Amen.